0: Hey everyone, big news. Up Next in Commerce is now available for sponsorship. If you love this show and you or maybe your company or someone in your network that you know may wanna reach an audience of supremely smart e-commerce leaders, then reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org and I'll give you all the juicy details around what our strategic partnerships look like. Email me at stephanie at and let's chat. Welcome to Up Next in Commerce the show that takes you to the front lines of what's happening in digital, retail, and beyond. With conversations from fast-growing startups to the Fortune 500 and everything in between, you'll get a glimpse into what's next. I'm your host, Stephanie Postles, the co-founder and CEO of mission.org, and I'll be your guide through all the trends, innovations, and hot topics in the world of commerce. Most of us have seen the new Mint Mobile commercials with Ryan Reynolds. And if you haven't yet, do a little bit of Googling to find one. You won't be sorry. And it's true, Ryan is more than just a spokesperson. But my guest today, Kenny Smithnanich, the AVP of e-commerce at Mint Mobile, explains how the brand's success goes far beyond Ryan's charm. Tune in to find out how Mint Mobile is achieving exponential growth and what role consumer psychology plays in Kenny's methods and strategies. the blue-collar worker looking for new ways to think about life, finances, and health. This is for the people who want to break the status quo and laugh a little or a lot along the way. Join me, Stephanie Postles, and my co-host, Albert Chow, as we address the subjects, thoughts, and trends that business leaders think about but don't often talk about. Tune into Mission Daily wherever you listen to your podcasts. See you there. Kenny, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: I'm very excited to have you today. So I want to start off with something you probably get all the time, but Ryan Reynolds, let's just start there and get that out of the way. Is he a partial owner in the company? Tell me all the details.
1: So he's a partial owner in the company and this is all that's all public public knowledge. So I'm happy to share that. And what's been interesting is he has his own marketing production company called Maximum Effort. And so a lot of the work that comes from Ryan, comes from him or his team. It's been really interesting to watch him work over the past 2 years. So he bought in 2 years ago in November, and he's been on a steady stream of creating ads um, and marketing material for Mint Mobile ever since. So it's been really fun to watch. It's a unique experience, right? How often can you have someone who's an owner and a celebrity at the same time? So we've learned a lot about how that kind of celebrity influence changes people's perceptions of a brand.
0: Yeah. So his ads, I was watching some of them. And okay, advertising does not normally make me laugh, but I'm like really impressed with his creative vision. I think he had one where he had his mom star in it because he's like, you know, we don't have budget. Who has budget to afford me? Here's my mom. And so she's like reading off a teleprompter. And the other one where his kid was filming it and he was paying his kid with candy and the camera kept going down. Yeah. I mean, to me, that was like genius marketing. I'm like, I'm sure it's so fun wondering what he's going to come up with next to be able to promote this company.
1: Absolutely, and he calls it fast advertising because they they spin up new ads really quickly, and it's Brian works closely with our CMO and our internal creative agency to create these these ads. but the thing that I've learned the most is that while he has his own big brand and he's a huge influencer on his, in his own right, like you said, the ads he's creating are so clever that he doesn't just sit back and lean on his celebrity and we've even seen ads perform really well that come out of his shop that he's not in, so to me, the lesson has been there are still ways to cut through the noise in advertising even if you aren't household name. Yeah. Because a lot of the things he's doing in, in these ads could, could have been thought about or thought of by anybody. It just happened to be thought about Ryan who mm-hmm. so has a space on it and adds some extra room. But routinely, like you said, the ads make you laugh. YouTube comments for all these ads are people saying like, this is the only person in the world who has me seek out advertising for so much.
0: Yeah. I didn't even know Yeah, he owned this company or was a partial owner and then that was a thing. And then once I started seeing the ads, I'm like, oh, now I need to go find more. I mean, what is the... If you know, like, what does the creative process look like behind the scenes? How are these ads being created, and what are you learning while watching this whole process?
1: Yeah, so the the ads are being created. It's either someone on on our team comes up with an idea and shoots it over to Ryan, his team, or vice versa, and it's it's very much collaborative. And then his team will help shape up the scripts. And then sometimes, like, our CMO will be flying to meet Ryan for a shoot, you know, with like one day's notice, because so much of these, so many of these ads are very topical. They they work really well. At a specific point in time when they're ideated, but they won't work later. So everything has to be really fast. And again, the thing I've learned the most is I think I'm trying to learn through osmosis, the way they approach advertisements, uh, with kind of a perpendicular slant. So if everyone's going this way, he doesn't want to go slightly this way. He wants to come at it from a totally different angle. And I think that's a good practice overall through, through all of marketing. I'll cut through the noise and sound and look different.
0: Love that. Okay, so tell me a bit about your background and how, like, what drew you to Mint Mobile?
1: So I was a direct response marketer for six years before Mint Mobile. I was working at a political consulting firm. And then I was working at a company where we sold cell phone cases online, which was a really great experience for direct response marketing because cell phone cases are cheap or low cost and people can buy them on an impulse. As long as they know that the case will fit their phone and they trust the site they'll they'll buy. And the thing that I've, I've always loved about direct response marketing is the learnings that you get as you test and as you put stuff out into the market. And then the, the way that those learnings add up over time to give you even better insights about customers. The problem with the cell phone cases business is that we were selling things that we were buying straight from China. There's no brand name. There's no brand equity, which meant the whole company rose and fell purely on the direct response marketing efforts and how efficiently we could manage our marketing spend. The next company I joined, I wanted to have like a really strong business value prop, a reason for existing. So if you read like a business case in school on this company, you'd be like, "Oh yeah, that makes sense. People are going to go there, and this company is going to do well." And then I wanted to join that so I could try to add some multiplier effect to something that was growing already. I wanted to help it grow faster, and that's what we found in Mint Mobile for sure, because the value prop, premium wireless, fifteen dollars a month is so strong, it's drawing people in all the time. Plus, quality service gets them to tell their friends. So all the work that we do day to day. It's just a multiplier on an already strong business
0: company. Got it. So for anyone who doesn't know Mint Mobile, how do I think about the offerings? I mean, you hear $15 a month and you're like, okay, I automatically probably should switch if it's the value and the price is that low. I mean, how can the price be that low? Like, what is this company?
1: Well, we rent service from T-Mobile. We T-Mobile is our wholesale supplier for, for wireless service. So we piggyback on, on their towers. And then the price is so low because we don't do a lot of the things that big wireless companies do. We're not running multi-billion dollar sports team sponsorships. Uh, we don't have physical stores, so we don't have all that overhead to support them. We don't have to train a whole team of salespeople just to occupy those stores. And then we also, the last thing we do that to, to help pass on savings is we, we only offer plans in three months, six months, or 12-month increments instead of going month to month. So we let, we, we let people buy in bulk on wireless. And that obviously creates its own savings, just like when you go to Costco and you buy a lifetime supply of paper towels, you get a better price than if you just buy a single roll.
0: It's really interesting thinking about just the cell phone industry, like landscape and all the different providers, because instead of finding maybe new customers, oftentimes I'm sure you're having to pull them from other providers. How did you have to switch your marketing tactics to think about, you know, instead of just finding new customers who maybe never knew about this product to you're already using a different one. And now I, I need to convince you to do the work, get out of your contract and come over here.
1: Very insightful question. That's exactly our challenge every single day. Most people probably should switch, including my dad, who every few months calls me and he's like, "I got, I have to switch to in. What do I do?" And then he just doesn't go through the work of doing it yeah. because he's not—he doesn't need to save badly enough, or he's a little too scared of the technical uh, components. So it's been interesting to watch the brand evolve in the four years since I've been here. Because at first we were targeting people who already they knew about SIM cards and knew how to switch their service. They knew about all the the non-big wireless companies, and they were always talking about for deals. So those were very much the early adopters. And then in the past few years, we've been getting more and more people who who have been lifetime T-Mobile, AT&T, Verizon, wireless subscribers. And that has been more of a challenge. So a lot of what my team does every day is think about what's getting people's way, how do we make this feel like less of a chore, and start to de-risk it for people. Because on the one hand, it's not very expensive. But on the other hand, it's kind of your whole lifeline to the outside world. Mm-hmm. So... There's this weird dichotomy where people think really hard about it, even though the price is really low. And that doesn't come up very often when you're trying when you sell something online.
0: Yeah. So what kind of tactics are you using then? Because, I mean, this sounds like such a difficult problem. What have you been experimenting, especially recently, with?
1: So the first, the first big thing we, we tackled was what we call the validation flow, which tells people that where they live and where they go will have good coverage, and that the phone that they have now... We'll work with new mobile. We don't need to buy a phone when you switch to Mint. That's really a big difference between us and the big carriers. Most of the time, the big carriers, you switch into them because they have a killer phone deal. And over the next two years, you're paying off the phone, and the carriers making money because of their overpriced wireless service. So we don't play those games. So you can buy a device from us. It's generally at market value or market price. You don't get a free phone or anything like that because we, we pass all these savings on to you uh, in the form of low-cost wireless. One thing we've been experimenting with recently. Is something that I'm really excited about. Because like I said, I mentioned my dad as a use case. I haven't gone to his house and like physically switched him over yet because I'm waiting, using him as a barometer to tell us when we're really getting the sweet spot of making it feel easy. Oh that's great. Just launched something we call premium activation support. And it's an extra cost. It costs $15. But what it does is it lets people like my dad get that assurance that when they when they decide to make the switch, they're gonna have someone to hold their hand. So active premium activation support we'll have one of our top tier managers on the customer care side. They'll get on the phone with you. They'll call your current carrier. They'll help you switch your phone. They'll help you get your phone unlocked if you have to. They'll walk you through every single step in the process. So you're never left to figure things out on your own, which I think is where my dad always gets hung up. And I'm using my dad as a model because I know him well, but also I just see his him all over the place in the market in general. People who might come to the site, they start going through the shopping experience, but they just don't love that it's so uh, asynchronous. You buy now, you get your some card in the mail, and then you switch over yourself. They'd rather have it do a management process. Mm-hmm. And it's worked well. We've had, we've had a decent take rate on this. On this
0: and manage with humans behind the scenes or bots, or is it a mix of both? It's all humans. All humans. I feel like that's crucial for like phone service switching. You definitely want someone to talk to and just be like, just tell me what to do. Make it easy and not get caught up in any loops or anything.
1: And that's why we call it premium activation support because there are automated ways. I and mean, our activation process is not hard. Mm-hmm. But if you're a little unsure, and 15 bucks is all it takes for you to really get over the hump. You're still, like, on your first order, you can buy activation support. You're still paying less than you would this month on your normal wireless code. So all in all, it's a a pretty easy sell. Um, But yeah, having someone there to hold your hand makes a lot of sense. And Mint Mobile, we really do focus on passing passing savings to customers. So if it wasn't a real person, it was all automated. We probably wouldn't even sell it because there's no cost to us. So why would we give our customers a cost?
0: Mm -hmm. Got it. So, I was going through your Twitter and I was reading one of your posts where you were bringing up nudges, where you could kind of like nudge someone to do something. And what was the other one? Was it sludges?
1: Sludge, yeah, sludge.
0: Okay, can you tell me the difference between those two? And then I want to hear if that relates to any of your work today or maybe what you're seeing with that. But first, definitions.
1: Okay, so nudge is a small cue or little push that you can give your customers to get them to take action. So, I think nudge really applies when people are switching wireless. Often it's used in in government to get people to do things that are beneficial for them, but they're not doing. A lot of behavioral economists would look at ways to like get people to walk more, or take the stairs, for example. And so what are nudges that you could do, to, like slight things you could put in someone's environment to get them to make a better choice or a healthier choice, a smaller choice, whatever, whatever have you. That definitely plays a role every day in, in how we think about wireless. But pushing someone along to do something they know they need to do is all about removing friction. So we're trying to make it feel as easy as possible. And activation support is definitely one of those things. Sludge is something where you actually add friction to a poor, to the the less valued experience. So the example I gave was, let's say everyone's taking the elevator. It's healthier if they take the stairs. How do you get them to take, how do you encourage stair taking? Well, what they did is they added a delay on the elevator door closing. They added like 26 seconds to the door's close time. So people are sitting there for 15 more seconds, like, this is taking forever. I'm just going to take the stairs. And it leads to a huge increase in taking the stairs. I think that there is a strong application of this to business in general and especially a high consumer purchase like selling wireless, but I haven't found a good way.
0: That's what I was going to ask. Or do you think this could be applicable to e-commerce brands? Because I was trying to think like, when is the time I could make something slightly more difficult for a customer in a way that, you know, gets them going in a better direction, but you don't lose them? Or do you think it's more of maybe like a brick and mortar type thing or solving, you know, solutions in the real world that maybe can't be monetized.
1: Yeah, definitely the very latter with things that can't be monetized. Yeah. And then for the business, I think it's about finding ways. So one example might be for uh, for Mint Mobile. We sell two different types of SIM cards. where we fulfill service via either a physical SIM card that we mail to you or an eSIM, which is all online. So you could buy a wireless service and activate today because we send you a QR code and then it does some settings on your phone and you can start using the service. Well, we obviously prefer eSIM and our customers do too because it's instant and we don't have to pay anything for shipping and there's no fulfillment costs. But it's also a newer technology. So even people who might be familiar with SIM cards, they get a little sketched out about eSIM thinking, like, is that going to take over my whole phone, etc. So sludge would be ways that we might add friction to the physical fulfillment process to drive more people to use.
0: That's good. There you go. You got an example for sure. Like, I'm not so sure. Yeah, it comes up right on the slot. I love that. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it was super interesting reading a lot of your psychology posts that you had on Twitter talking about different biases and stuff. How did you get interested in this world?
1: Okay. So let's go. I'm going to go way back for a second. Okay. The way I got interested in marketing in general is when I, my now wife was a master's student in anthropology and I went to an anthropology conference with her. But they were talking about all these um, the studies that they were doing about how people behave it was evolutionary anthropology. So it's about like the roots of human behavior. And how do you know that certain types of behavior are replicated across an entire population? Of people? That's where statistics comes in and also economics. And then I started to see the value of that and changing people's behavior in the real world, either for, for good or for profit or both. Um, and it, it seems to me like all marketing fundamentally comes down to influence and persuasion. And you have to understand how people operate, how they make decisions and why they make decisions to really do a good job of that. And so uh, cognitive biases and the, of like the ways that the, the the flawed rationale that people use to make decisions is something that everyone should be aware of, so they can guard against it on their own. But it's also something that marketers should know about, so that we can help uh, find ways to help our customers avoid making those flawed decisions or flawed reasoning on their own.
0: Okay, so you know, I'm going to ask you now about these, I want to hear about the flawed rationales that they have, because I personally do not know them. And oh. I don't know if everyone else does. So maybe we can go off in that direction now. And then we can turn back.
1: <laughs> yeah. So when I was just I just read something about this morning. So it's top of mind is, uh, is called gambler's fallacy, where you might, you might expect future performance to be based on past performance, even in situations where things are completely random. So like, roulette, every spin of the wheel is unique. Like if you, if you get five blacks in a row on roulette and you have like black, red, and green, if there's five blacks in a row, the next spin is not more likely to be red. Although lots of people think it's likely to be red because you've had so many blacks, it's bound to be red. But it's still a 50-50-ish chance on the very next spin. Another one that applies a lot more to selling things is cognitive uh, or choice overload. If you have too many things in front of you, too many options, it becomes way harder to pick one. Whereas if you just have a few options, fewer than five, then it's easier to pick one. And, and there's interesting ramifications for that, too, where even if people make a choice under choice-overload conditions, they're less likely to be satisfied with. And I think you see that in restaurants all the time, where restaurants that have huge menus, yeah. not only is it harder to pick a meal, but then once you pick one, you're looking at what everyone else got, and you're always, in the back of your mind, a little sad at what you didn't choose. Yeah. Whereas some, a, a restaurant that has five items on the menu, it's really easy to pick, you feel really confident about your choice because it's the best one out of, out of a very limited set of options. And then that also comes, comes in with selling wireless service. So we technically sell 12 different plans with different data amounts and duration, but that's a lot for people to pick up on. So it's just a lot more, sleeping wireless is hard. There's lots of information that you're, that's in mind. You're not really sure if it matters, if it doesn't. Generally, like, very anxious, I think, when you're talking for wireless because the, the ramifications of a poor decision could be huge and very time consuming. So one thing we did early on was we reduced the number of plans that people see right away on the site to just our most popular three-month plans. So we took that option from 12 down to three to four. And that had a huge impact on, on helping people pull it further and, and actually purchase a plan. Because there's, there's not as much to think about now. Just those four options, pick one that's closest. To hmm,
0: that's great. Okay, I like how you related that to an exact thing you did within the company just through knowing that. Tell me about the gambler's fallacy. How can I think about that? And it doesn't have to be at your current company. It can be, you know, just within e-commerce. How can I apply that one?
1: So I think that one mostly applies to people who are practicing marketing because you expect the same thing you saw previously, you expect to see it in the future. Mm-hmm. And that's not necessarily you need to really understand the motivation the reasons why you saw a certain behavior in the past. And um gambler's fallacy is probably not the right example for this, but um it's in a similar vein where You're basing your future decisions on past results, even though they're, the two are disconnected. So if you're, if you run a Facebook ad, for example, and it took off, it did super well, and then you run it again, or a similar ad, and it doesn't do well, you might think that, uh, the expectation was that the Facebook ad would do well, when really the reason it did well in the first place is because of some algorithm tweaks or some changes in seasonality. There's, there's things influencing consumer decisions that, um, that unless marketers are really focused on research, it's hard for them to, to understand like, what, what was an, out, an external influence and what was it, uh, an influence from their actual marketing efforts. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I see that happen all the time with, with new marketing. Tactics.
0: Yeah, that's great. I'm also looking at your post right now. So I'm looking at the one on where it has survivorship bias, conservatism bias, scope neglect. Those are interesting too.
1: Yeah, especially survivorship bias. I see that a lot all the time. Because often, if you're reading best practices, you're reading the best practices of a company that has survived and flourished. Mm -hmm. Other companies that may have failed may be doing exactly the same playbook as the company you're reading about that was successful. But you think that the playbook you're reading was the cause of their success, when in reality, they just happen to be the only people that are broadcasting a playbook. Their success might be due to something entirely different. So Mm -hmm. with that in mind, you realize it's important to take best... Look at what people call best practices, but like, try to break them down into basic principles or or like initial truths about the world and then build back up from there. Because just talking to someone else playbook has no guarantee of success. That's good. And failing at marketing. Is super yeah,
0: we need more failure stories. Like where are the companies yeah. who are gone who are like, oops, here's the things that you know, I would do differently. Because I think that whole term comes from and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it comes from hedge funds where you look at the performance of these hedge funds or these index funds, and you see a great number. And it's because they killed off all the other funds that were part of that portfolio. And so what you see left is just the ones that survive. And so the number looks great. Yeah. But yeah, I want to I hear more failure stories from these companies so we can actually learn like why did they go down the way they did.
1: I totally agree. And it's, it's interesting because there's, there's a I think it's all survivorship bias because we they don't have a microphone. Mm-hmm. You have to have a failure, and then the same person involved in the failure has to go on to a success, so they then have a platform mm-hmm. to talk about their failure and people will listen. Otherwise, I think there's so many failures, it's hard to pick out which ones matter. And it's the same on Twitter growth. So I've been on Twitter for like two months now, and I've been reading a lot and uh, of what people have done to to grow faster or get bigger audiences on Twitter. Mm-hmm. And I'm realizing that, well, those are self, self-perpetuating self Uh, story because everyone who may have followed the same playbook but didn't get big has no platform to voice the failure of following that playbook because by definition no one's following them and no one's seeing their posts so you can't actually understand the success rate of any given framework
0: there's a stereotype of the average american worker whose life goes something like this go to work come home consume some kind of entertainment go to sleep lather rinse repeat if you're listening to this ad then I know that that life does not resonate with you. For the truly disruptive business leader, work doesn't stay at the office and unwinding doesn't mean watching TV at night every single night. This is why we've created Mission Daily, a podcast that discusses the trends, habits, and ideas that thoughtful business people are contemplating every day. From quirky business opportunities to interesting investment ideas to the latest research in health, and exercise, and alternative medicine, and maybe even plant medicine. Who knows where we're going to go, but Mission Daily covers it all. We're releasing new episodes every weekday. So join me, Stephanie Postles, and my co-host, Albert Chow, as we discuss the subjects, thoughts, and trends that business leaders think about, but don't talk about. Publicly, that is. Break the status quo. Tune into Mission Daily wherever you listen to your podcasts. See you there. So how do you stay up on all the things around psychology that it seems like you're directly applying into the business. I mean, what are you listening to or reading?
1: Uh, it's very eclectic. I think there's a, a few good podcasts. And there's one called Most no Stupid Questions. There's one called People I Mostly Admire. And then there's a economic podcast. Those are all kind of tendentially related to behavioral economics. I and mean, even when one, one of their episodes has nothing to do with uh, business, which often they don't. Uh, they are talking about fundamental human psychology, which obviously comes to play again back in the market.
0: Yep. Oh, those are good. I used to always listen to Freakonomics. That was a that was a good one back in the day. I'll have to tune back into that one again. Yeah,
1: yeah. I, I tend to binge them and, and then forget about them and then binge
0: them. So I want to hear about maybe some secrets right now in the world of marketing that you feel like you and your team are tapping into, and more people need to know about it. I mean, what are you doing behind the scenes that you're actually having really great results with, or maybe new channels or platforms that you're trying out that you know you think more marketing professionals and commerce professionals should know about?
1: Yeah. So it's it's nothing new, but I think what we've developed in mobile is a a proof of the value. On my e-commerce team, we have a group dedicated to digital insights and analytics, which combines user research, so qualitative research about customers and customer behavior and buying behavior, and quantitative uh, data like actual analytics um, on the site. So it says like what are people doing and why are they doing it, and that's that's given us such great foundational knowledge about people's behavior. So if we run a test and we see an increase in conversion rate. It's our insights, insights team that really confirmed that the reason we saw an increase in sales was because our hypothesis were correct or because we happened to hit on something that we luckily tapped into and then that gave us a new direction to go on. And, and what, what we've done since day one, we've done an amazing job of reporting all our test results so that today the tests we're running are built on four years of testing. And at the last company I was at, that wasn't we do a lot of testing, but we didn't have a great database or repository for tests. So you wind up after a year or two, you get, start getting day job. you're like, can you do this before? But you don't have a systematic way of recording it. So you don't know for sure if you did or not or what the results were. And you just wind up testing the same thing over and over What I'm proud of that we've built is this cumulative body of knowledge based on all of our testing and research.
0: Wow. So what are your favorite tools then to keep all that data organized? Or is it a specific way you're setting the team up to make sure that you guys are actually answering these questions and keeping track of it? Like, How do you set that up?
1: I don't have a specific tool because I haven't found one that seems to work. So we have our internal company, Wikipedia, it's working conference. Um so what I've been fortunate with is uh being able to set the team up in a way that gives different team members enough bandwidth to keep up with this recording and documentation. And I think that's when the marketers fall flat. Is it's always seems like the the third priority when you run the experiments. So like first you want to test, come up with tests, then you want to act on them and launch the winner. And then, or, or if it's illegal, like, forget about it and move on. We always want to keep acting. So I've been able to build a team where I would give people bandwidth to, to record the results and be really thoughtful, knowing that what they report as a result is our reference point for the people. It's like that, that is the single most important part of all of our tests, having a really good outcome and conclusion for why it was the behavior that we saw.
0: Got it. Okay. So now you touched on team building and having your team, you know, a great team. And I know you wrote a post around. How to manage, and you know how you've hired. I think you were managing maybe fifteen people at one point, and talking about that. And I want to hear, you know, what it looks like to be a good manager from your viewpoint.
1: Yeah. So the first thing is, I've been fortunate. Now I have three direct reports who all have, you know, branched out to their own direct reports. And I think our e-commerce team now has twenty or twenty-five people on it. So I'm fortunate because I, I have great people leading each of the three functions on the e-commerce team. Once you have great people like the people I have. That I get to work with. Everything becomes so much easier because a lot of the conversations are so constructive and there's no direction. It's all just a meeting of the minds. And my role becomes creating a good scaffold and process framework for them to be able to focus 100% on delivering the marketing, either insights or experiences or content that they have to deliver. They don't have to worry about all the other things. The data is there for them to access, the teams that can feed it to them, and then there's good pipelines for getting the work out the door. So all they need to do is focus on. Uh, really good customer-based insights and executing ideas against them. That's been really fun. It was a new challenge for me four years ago. And increasingly, I see it as the role of marketing leaders to create structure for the more tactical leaders to execute within without having to worry about the right of messy processes or on Twitter. The hardest part, obviously, since COVID has been getting to know really genuine under the team. So we do, um, we do a lot of, uh, Team lunches where we we'll play games. It will be like a people pictionary, and then two or three times a year we be five and then we'll to be in person. We we'll be a lunch and we'll a dinner and like an all day mm-hmm. just to get to know you And the key for me is finding ways, especially with junior team members, where you can't talk about work as much because they don't they just haven't been around long enough to find personal ways to connect. Like some kind of common ground where you can be friendly to someone and, and you always have something to talk about if you found that way. It's it's like common sense friendship stuff, but it's not. Intuitive to apply it necessarily than you talking to someone who has been working with full-time job for just six months. That's what I found to be a big game changer, and I think people can get a lot of value from
0: it. Yep, yep, makes sense. So I'd love to ask, what are some maybe technologies or trends that you're watching right now? You seem like you're someone who stays up to date in the world of commerce and all the things that are changing quickly. Is there anything that's piquing your interest right now, or that you're following?
1: Yeah, I'm still, I'm looking really heavily at quizzes right now. They've been, okay. I think they've been big for a couple of years on a lot of websites, but they're interesting because they break the mold of normal e-commerce based, uh, best practices, say. So normally on e-commerce, you're trying to reduce the number of inputs required to do a thing. So on a checkout form, the fewer inputs you have, the more conversions you get. On a gen form, the fewer requirements, required fields you have, the more inputs you get. But the thing about quizzes is that Across the board, people are finding that the longer quizzes do as well or better compared to shorter quizzes. So what I love about the concept of quizzes is for any kind of product that requires some consideration or a product where a customer is likely to face quiz overload because they can't pick the one that fits them out of all the options. A quiz gives you a really targeted silo that lets the customer give you the inputs that they need. And you can also educate them along the way. So on a traditional website funnel like ours, you have like a homepage, you have a category page, Product, cart, checkout, and then go to complete. And you're trying to like put, and the customer's really only interested in one piece of information on each of those pages because they think they know what they want. So whether your copy that's trying to sell the customer on picking you is read right or not is a total crap because it's one piece of content among many. Whereas with quizzes, you know that people are reading what messages you are putting in front of them. So if it's a, like for wireless, if we're trying to help someone find the right data plan or try to help them calculate their savings. In between questions, we can sprinkle in a sentence or two that educates them on the brand and how the service works. Whereas if in the general flow of the website, it's really easy for someone to wind up on the cart without having read anything, because they just click the buttons and gone through without reading anything, the quiz lets you educate someone. And at the end, they're more likely to buy because they have a very targeted recommendation on what to buy. And they feel confident because they spend so much time with the quiz, of course, it's going to understand their needs better. And it asks them all the questions that they think are relevant. Making this decision. Oh, that's great. And then the thing that really interests me is that quizzes don't have to open with something really directly related to selling the product, which could be more like a chatbot. So we're looking at different ways to make, we haven't found a, one that I love yet, but we're looking at different ways to make the opening question of the quiz a lot more engaging and surprising. Like what you know, getting people to think like, what is this? And then it starts with some questions that you're like, this doesn't seem related to wireless at all. Yep. But then after you started the answer, you're kind of hooked in and then Then we get into the wireless. And in the end, it's kind of a a blend.
0: That's fun. Okay. What's your favorite question that you've at least brainstormed? It didn't have to go live, but opening question.
1: Yeah. Okay. So I can never remember the right wording for it, but it's something like piggybacking on other quizzes. But it's like, which Marvel superhero is your your, uh, phone usage most like? That's
0: good. I would start that.
1: Yeah. So I can see how Thor might not use a cell phone at all. He's like just texting. And so like, maybe if you're... You know, if you're in your 60s or 70s, you somehow match more with Thor. But if you're on there all day, every day, maybe, I don't know, maybe it's like you're Tony Stark and he's always connected. Um, if you have a lot of connected devices in the house, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. So we haven't really put that into words or, or run it through rigorous results or uh, testing yet. But I think there's something there to try looking that, exciting.
0: Yeah, it was fun. We put a quiz on our website to see, you know, should your company partner with us on a podcast? And with the answers, we put little memes or you know things like gifts that were moving and that quiz converted so much better than the one that just had the answers which from our perspective we were like okay we have b2b buyers they don't want to mess around with gifts and you know that's like maybe too young for them and it converted higher when we added the more like you know animated answers
1: just on the results
0: (laughs) yeah i mean the completion rates were way higher because people wanted to like i guess they wanted to get through and see what gifts we had throughout the whole quiz because they were on every slide So we had one that didn't have any and then one that had them on every single slide. And that one converted way better to get someone to actually complete the quiz.
1: That's really interesting. That makes sense. And I think there's something there that we haven't tapped into yet that I'd like that might be interesting to use Ryan Reynolds with, where he could have his own content that's original and it was like that. And then wanting to know what's on the next screen from him. That's funny.
0: Yeah. You might get a lot of people who actually... Aren't even interested in switching phone services, or maybe they're already Mint Mobile customers, and they're like, "I still just want to see it."
1: <laughs> yeah, totally. And if you can make the result shareable, like which maybe which Ryan Reynolds movie character are you next mm-hmm. like?
0: Yeah, and, and then
1: it's a little hybrid. It's that, or it's, uh, it's a wireless recommendation. if We
0: just created it right here. This is all we need, Kenny. Just you and I brainstorming. We will fix all the problems. All right. Well, I want to move over to the lightning round. The lightning round is brought to you by Salesforce Commerce Cloud. This is where I'm going to ask you a question and you have a minute or less to answer. Are you ready, Kenny? Ready. All right. First thing, if you were to choose any book as mandatory reading for commerce leaders, what would it be?
1: It would be, it's actually a leadership book. It's called Multipliers, but for all leaders everywhere, you need to be able to get the most out of your team, out of their potential. Mm -hmm. I think everybody has superpowers that aren't they are sometimes hard to dig up. I would force everyone to read this book multipliers to really think about how they're drawing out the best of their team or suppressing it if they're activities.
0: Yep, that is a good one. I love that one. All right, next one. What do you not understand today but wish you did?
1: I don't understand the impact of iOS 14 on Facebook ads as well as I wish I did. I've been so focused on e-commerce. I haven't yeah. done... I have a counterpart who does all the media, so she sends people to our site and then my team and I convert them. So just for industry reasons, I would find a it better. Maybe.
0: Yep, that's a good one. I always hear everyone talking about it and complaining, and I'm like, what's exactly happening? Because I actually read, uh, who was it? I think it was the guys at Common Thread Collective or something that put out a newsletter that showed that essentially – Facebook ads and the performance, the ROAS and everything are back to where they used to be yeah. before the change. And so then I'm like, maybe we had all this fuss for nothing, people. I don't know. No one quote me on this. I do not run Facebook ads, but I did see a post and I feel like, you know, it seemed like it was pretty accurate.
1: I also took a similar gist away. I thought my takeaway was like, you can't tie it really direct lines to the social spend like you used to be able to, but the overall performance is still there. like it before. That's what I took from it. Don't quote me either i probably read this
0: Oh, yeah. Everyone can blast Kenny and I on Twitter. You know where to find us. Let us know if we're completely wrong. But okay, next one. Would you rather lose all of your old memories or never be able to make new ones?
1: Uh, I'd rather lose all my old memories and make new ones as long as I can remember the new ones like, from this point. Yeah. Yeah.
0: All right, there you go. Last one. What looks unsustainable, but is actually just a new trend we haven't yet accepted?
1: So I've been seeing a lot of personal newsletters or small, small-ish uh, newsletters pop up all over the place that seems like it won't last forever and there's going to be some consolidation and then everyone's going to get into, you know, there's going to go back to just a couple of newsletters that people read. You know, Morning Brew is a big example of that. There's another one, The Hustle, which was a really big newsletter. There's also thousands and thousands of smaller ones with a 1, thousand, ten thousand, a 100,000 subscribers that think are all over the place and I think they're here to stay as a model of new content consumption, a way to cut through the noise with the newsletters from the creators that you like directly rather than from aggregate services. I don't know that it's here to stay forever or if it's going to follow a normal business cycle of like consolidation, and then you can do just a few and then everyone's going to stop on attention because it's too generic. But if something about it just feels like it's here to stay and it's like a new part of the economy, both opportunities for individuals, but also for companies to find ways to make together.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's a great answer. Sometimes my guest gets stumped on that one, but you just nailed it, crushed it. That's great.
1: Well, thanks. i made it
0: up on this one. <laughs> Perfect. Well, Kenny, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for coming on the show today and being an Epic guest. Where can people learn more about what you're up to and Mint Mobile?
1: I'd like them to follow me on Twitter, Kenny with And then Mint Mobile will, if you visit our site one time until you buy, will be in all the other websites that you, that you visit and pretty well on your YouTube videos. So that's a good way to keep up with Mint Mobile.
0: There you go. Thank you, Kenny. Hey, listeners. Thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.